This is Catherine Cruz. You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. Today, we introduce you to a man who's been tapped to be the lead coordinator for public health and medical services under the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Dr. Steve Henkin uh, teaches family medicine at the University of Hawaii John Burns School of Medicine and has a background in disaster preparedness and response. His mission now is to coordinate efforts to manage this health crisis. His aim is bridging public health, healthcare services, and voluntary uh, uh, community volunteer efforts. Dr. Steve Hankins has officially been on the job in this role for a week now after being initially brought on in an advisory capacity. My role is, a, is really as a lead coordinator, and what I'm tasked with is integrating these pieces and helping the state have the most efficient and effective response as it relates to public health and medical service delivery related to the incident of having this pandemic that we're faced with. So uh, as an example, I know we've had the cluster over there on Maui, and I think they had a need for test kits and probably personal protective equipment. And I recall one of the news conferences, I think Bruce Anderson of the health department had said, oh, I think there were like six pallets of of, uh, supplies that were dispatched over there. I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're working on? Yes. What's what's invisible to many people is really since 9-11, there has been this national incident management system structure that is in place and state emergency management agencies plug into that. And this is the process and procedures through which resources are identified and made available and agencies, different agencies and levels of response. If they have needs, how they integrate with the state and then how the state integrates with the federal response and its process and procedure through which resources are made to flow. And it's very, very structured, so there are formal requests that come up. So if, for example, in this kind of example of Maui, if there is a a jurisdiction that is not able to meet a need at the local level, then they would bump that up as a request uh, for assistance to the state, and we would mobilize what assets we had available. Okay, so uh, I know in Maui uh, Medical's instance, in that example, I think Kaiser's you know, has sent a team over there to help them out, you know, and then whatever supplies they need, I believe they're getting now. Yes, uh, so there were definitely what we call uh, push-outs of the resources that were being requested, and even sort of anticipatorily, we're able to send things out. Uh, if we know kind of what it is that they're going to need, those available, and as they like to say in the response business, lean lean forward a little bit and push things out when they're needed. But again, most of the time it comes directly through a, a requesting process. It's the entire system is really set up to be what we call a pool-based system, where somebody identifies a need that they don't have a resource for, and then reaches up to the next level. Okay, so if there's a log jam, you can break that. Yes, we have you know, certainly more ability. Again, we're, we're this interface between the local response efforts and the larger national response efforts, and we're able to take challenges in terms of resourcing as they come up. You were a commission officer in the U.S. Public Health Service, and you focused on emergency preparedness. Can you talk about that experience? So I was a commissioned officer for seven years, and I was part of a program called the Ready Responders, uh, which was very unique. It was set up after 9-11, and the objective was to put clinicians of all stripes, so we had nurses and doctors and dentists and other public health professionals who took duty assignments working in some of the most under-resourced and challenged communities in America, some of our most vulnerable. So, for example, my duty stations in those seven years, one was out on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona, and then the second one was in inner city Baltimore. And I had clinical duties and responsibilities in those sites, including being an emergency room director in Arizona and doing full-spectrum family medicine. And then in Baltimore, I ran uh, HIV STD clinic. But 
aside from that, we were really placed in those communities to be capacity builders in terms of um, preparedness uh, and response activities. So I, for example, would help the local hospital create its incident command structure for managing emergencies from the ground up and train individuals and run exercises. And then we were also deployable assets to the federal government. So we got all kinds of training, including the chemical, biological, nuclear kinds of training that the Army does, and, and then general disaster preparedness and response things as well. So I did deploy um, to Katrina. I was in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, where the eye of the, the storm came ashore as part of a hospital augmentation team and helped coordinated some of those efforts. And then uh, I was in Baltimore for the H1N1 pandemic and helped the city health department uh, and several other you know, events on the National Mall and deployed with the USNS Mercy uh, for some international work. So those were kinds of the experiences that helped prepare me to have a, a fairly good sense of how things work. Well, you also are a family physician, and, mm-hmm. and you have a background in uh, psychology and theology, uh, so you really look at the whole patient. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, family medicine is really grounded in not only the, pa- the whole patient, which is critical, because we know that the overlap between our mental and emotional and psychological and physical health is, is so tremendous and that really to make effective change you have to address all of those. But even more so, the, the broader context in the family, in the community, our department is actually the department uh, for my day job at John A. Byrne School of Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health because we see that they are all integrated. And so that has also given me a unique perspective because many folks in either the public health or response sectors don't have that uh, clinical experience of, you know, delivering babies and helping people on hospice uh, take their their last breaths in a good way. So having that whole range of clinical experience in multiple healthcare systems and communities uh, has been really helpful. You know, as I was looking at the HAEMA management plan, you know, they were looking at the critical systems, our vulnerabilities when it comes to disasters, you know, like hurricanes. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that popped out at me was the medical side, you know, where they talked about, you know, we have three days of general supply, seven days of pharma. How are you looking at that? Actually, we're, we're fortunate thus far um, in, the, in, in this event that the supply chain is intact. We don't have broken shipping lines. We don't have, which is, which is different from some of these natural disaster hazards. You're, you're absolutely right to pick up on it. But so those pieces are good, of course, you know, if, um, if a large amount of your delivery folks in that sector are laid off or not able to work, then, then that has impact. So we are tracking that very closely. But right now, from the logistical supply side, there's not those same kinds of issues that you have with a physical disruption. Okay, so we have that advantage right now. Yeah, actually, Hawaii has many advantages right now. What I would underscore is that every single one of us, every individual in our community is a response partner for something of this scale. And so doing the simple public health things that we know make a difference in every single respiratory viral outbreak, so that is washing your hands, covering your cough and sneeze, especially in your shoulder, elbow, making sure that you maintain uh, reasonable physical spacing. Uh, I am flipping the script that we don't want to be socially distanced. We want to be physically spaced while maintaining social connection. That we take care of those of our very fragile and and vulnerable community and that we are reaching out to each other because that's what gets us through these kinds of events is neighbors taking care of neighbors and building capacities throughout our local community. So that's, that's really where the most of the benefit and how we're going to end up in the best place on the other side of this will be. Yeah, share the aloha during this time. We really need it. Yes, the aloha, the ohana, the kuleana. And that was a conversation we had this morning with Dr. Steve Hankins, who has been tapped by the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency for a key position during this pandemic response. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday, the 17th of April. I'm Alex Ritson. Germany says it's brought its coronavirus outbreak under control. Britain could see the highest COVID-19 death toll in Europe. 
And what does Earth look like after months on the space station? The German health minister has declared the country's COVID-19 outbreak under control after a decline in the infection rate. Figures published by Germany's disease control agency, the Robert Koch Institute, indicate the infection rate has dropped to 0.7. That means each infected person passes the virus to less than one other person on average. The health minister, Jens Spahn, said the number of patients who'd recovered had been higher each day this week than the number of new infections. We can say that the lockdown was successful. We managed to bring the exponential growth of infections back to linear growth. The infection numbers have decreased significantly, especially the relative increase from day to day. The outbreak has become controllable again, more controllable. Germany will partially reopen shops next week and schools from May. Three and a half thousand people have died of COVID-19 in Germany and more than 13,000 have been infected. Those totals are far lower than comparable Western economies. A leading health expert says the British government was too slow to act in the first phases of the coronavirus outbreak. Professor Anthony Costello told Parliament's Health Select Committee that those errors could result in the highest death rate in Europe. Where were the system errors that led us to have probably the highest death rates in Europe? And we have to face the reality of that. We were too slow with a number of things. We could see 40,000 deaths by the time it's over. At the British government's latest briefing, the business minister announced that a task force was being set up to help develop a coronavirus vaccine as soon as possible. Researchers in Australia say they've developed a new sewage test that could help identify coronavirus hotspots. The test has found genetic traces of COVID-19 in wastewater, and the researchers say this could identify specific areas where the disease is present. Phil Mercer reports from Sydney. Samples of raw sewage at two wastewater plants in the state of Queensland were found to contain genetic fragments of the disease. The technique would complement the testing of individuals for the new coronavirus. Scientists hope it would give a broad community-wide indication of how the pandemic is being contained. The Swiss pharmaceutical firm Roche says it's developed a blood test to check whether somebody has COVID-19 antibodies. Roche says it plans to make the test available next month and has capacity to ramp up production into the millions. Testing for antibodies to show whether a person has had the coronavirus is seen as a key way to help ease lockdown restrictions. Sweden's top public health official has defended his country's approach to the COVID pandemic with schools, restaurants and shopping malls still open. Maddie Savage reports. The Director-General of the Swedish Public Health Agency raised concerns about the impact of stricter lockdowns on mental and physical health, as well as domestic violence levels, and said he couldn't see any rationale for people sitting indoors listening to radio announcements asking them not to go out. The scientists said Sweden's strategy was designed to last for the longer term, even until 2022 if necessary. 12,500 people have been infected in Sweden and more than 1,300 people have died. China has rejected mounting international criticism over the transparency of its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. A foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Lijian, told journalists the 50% upward revision in the death toll in the city of Wuhan, where the disease first emerged, was simply to ensure accuracy. We noted that some countries and regions have also made revisions to data. The Chinese government has always maintained an open, transparent and responsible attitude and kept the World Health Organization and relevant countries and regions informed of the epidemic situation. The French military has ordered an inquiry into how more than a 1,000 sailors on the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle tested positive for coronavirus. 20 are in hospital, one in intensive care. The total seems certain to rise further as not all tests of the 2,000-strong crew have been completed. And three astronauts in orbit for many months have returned from the International Space Station to a world transformed by the pandemic while they've been away. The two Americans and a Russian landed in Kazakhstan, where a state of emergency is in force because of the virus. Thanks for listening wherever you are. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
Support for the conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live weekly discussion on the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, 8 p.m. Thursdays, April 23rd and 30th. pbshawaii.org. I'm Ira Flato. This week on Science Friday, our Degrees of Change series explores the emotional environment of climate change. From anxiety about rising seas to what many have described as climate grief. It's really powerful and really crushing. And then you have to keep living. How to keep on living on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, dedicated to providing current information about the people of the United States, now hiring census takers for the 2020 census. More at 2020census.gov jobs. Hawaii's economy runs on small business. The Federal Small Business Administration defines small businesses as less than uh, 500 employees. So that means that 99% of all businesses in the state qualify. ProService Hawaii is the state's largest HR services provider serving 2,500 employers across the islands. HPR's Noe Tanigawa talked to President and CEO Ben Godsey. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. I'm so happy to introduce you all to Ben. Um, married to a science teacher in the community, three kids, he bought Pro Service Hawaii in 2005. That means he's been running it for 15 years. You know, so he's seen some cycles here, including the last downturn, to, uh, 08, 09, and he says it actually lasted through uh, 2010. He really um, sees it from the inside. God, he works with 2,500 businesses, you know, all across the state here. And the companies range from two employees to 500 employees. Uh, the average is about 20. So with the whole current situation in mind, I asked him for an overview. When we went into quarantine and turned off air travel to defeat the virus, we also turned off the economy. Employer payrolls have shrunk by about 35 to 40%. Overall, my, my guess is the economy is down you know, 30% from where it was a month ago on a run rate basis. Our economy really depends on social interactions, whether that's a restaurant or a retail store or an entertainment business, a, a hospitality company. You're not seeing real estate transactions happen. You know, places are being pulled off the market. It depends on person-to-person contact. And in, under quarantine, that's no longer permitted. I mean, it's kind of amazing, Catherine, right? When you think the extent to which our, our society, our economy hinges on the interpersonal. <laughs> I mean, but some... A few businesses are, are still staying quite busy. I mean, Godsey says security is quite busy, delivery, some other essential services. Yeah, well, you know. let's talk about what is open, right? There's some grocery stores open, <laughs> there's restaurants, and they're, they're doing takeout. Uh, here on they Oahu, are. I know they've got construction and landscapers that are still out there. I see them on my street. Uh, so exactly. So there's Deliveries still some... are still happening. Yes. Mm-hmm. Grocery stores are open, and, you know, there are lines outside of them. Some medical offices are still open. So, you know, dentists, however, are kind of closed. Um, the thing is, Hawaii, I mean, just think about all those places we mentioned, Catherine. Hawaii's all about small business. I mean, when our economy's down, it's not Boeing or Staples that's going under. It's our moms and pops, the uncles and aunties that we know that sacrifice with these businesses, you know, the fender shop, the crack seed store, the hairdresser, the seamstress, the fishing gear shop. you got to ask yourself, are they going to be there when this is over? I mean, they make up 99.3% of all businesses here. And Gatti says that is a particular worry. Small employers don't have large cash reserves, uh, typically like big employers do. Uh, even our small nonprofits don't have big reserves of capital. So, you know, the typical small business has anywhere from, you know, a week to a month worth of uh, available funds. And so without fresh revenue coming in, they don't have a long runway until they completely run out of cash. Uh, and that's why this has been such an urgent crisis here in Hawaii is because our economy, you know, is so heavily dominated by small employers. And that's extremely worrying. You know, most small employers have Many have mortgaged their house or, you know, have personally guaranteed their business, and they're facing the fears of bankruptcy, personally and professionally, and, of course, their staff as well. So it's not just their family, but it's their employees that depend on them. So, Noe, what does he recommend? Yeah, well, 
Godsey says, prepare for the worst and act quickly. He said, start with figuring out what business opportunities, if any, you have left. Then turn off your non-employee-related expenses. Then turn down your employee expenses. He says, businesses need to keep enough people to protect the core business and be ready to capitalize on opportunities when they reappear, which he says they will. The concerns we're dealing with are their human concerns. And what we're doing is working with employers so that employers can continue to offer health coverage for their employees, even if their employees have, you know, are completely laid off. They can do that for at least the next three months. The premiums still have to be paid, of course. Yeah. So that's a yeah. commitment that the company has to make to the employee, huh? Yes. And are we going to see a big slide of people just losing their health benefits as a result of this? Yeah. That's something that we'll watch as well. I think that if you combine what employers are trying to do with the expanded benefits of unemployment and the, and the, the, the stimulus checks that are coming, there's also money in employees' hands for at least the next three or four months to cover insurance premiums. The concern I have is after that. If the money starts to dry up, then yes, it's a big concern whether or not we'll have a lot of people losing health care coverage. Ooh, this is stuff to think about, huh, Catherine? Yeah, it's scary stuff. Well, all in all, Ben Godsey says that if we can eliminate the virus in Hawaii and secure a fast, reliable test, there's a chance we could make a robust recovery. If the infection continues to circulate in the community, Godsey says current stimulus funds will run out after two or three months. They may be extended, maybe not. And there's a significant risk we'll experience recessionary conditions for at least a year. Yeah, it is very uh, sobering, and I know there are lots of companies out there, you know, big and small, that, uh, mm. you know, this whole piece of the medical coverage, the health coverage, yeah. it's key. Um, you know, so, so we're, we're so proud of the extent of health care coverage that people have in Hawaii. Well, a lot of that is employer. It's employer covered. That's how we've managed to do it. Maybe I, I, how, how it's going to come through on this is really something, because the latest numbers are... 237,048 unemployment insurance claims since the 1st of March. You know how many we did? We did all of 2019, 18,000. That was the entire year. And that's why we're having such a hard time keeping up uh, with the processing of those claims because yeah. there's so many. Nobody really anticipated they, there would be this volume. Exactly. Well, DLIR said they, they managed to get $11 million out last week in the first couple of days of this week they got another million, 11 million out you know paid in um claims and they're just working hard on this but um it, there's still a big way to go and for the people for the employees um you know it's been rough i mean the maximum maximum you can get per week here in hawaii for unemployment is 648 dollars um i talked to a restaurant worker who said that if he looks at that and if he can get close to the maximum, he thinks he can maintain his health coverage for the length of time he gets in his unemployment. The CARES Act provisions allow another 13 weeks on your unemployment benefits. So, fingers crossed. Yeah, and uh, I know the ho some of the hotels have indicated, you know, that they're willing to, to float some of the health care coverage uh, for the hotel workers, some of them anyway. Uh, you know, and then, but then you also have big companies like, you know, Hawaiian Airlines, and they have a lot of employees, mm -hmm. and they're not flying a whole heck of a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. Most airlines are not. You really see the position that employers are put in, you know, of course, and everybody's, including ours. And um, it's, it's a really, really, what a situation, you know, from everybody's point of view. Um, the advice that 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 uh, Godzi gives to employers, They're, they have a, you know, response to COVID um, link on their site where that they're offering free to all employers, you know, in the state. And I think some small businesses might be able to make use of some of their um, processes, selection, and um, suggestions there. So we can provide the link to that. All right, um, well, good information. But thanks so much, Noe. Hey, thank you, Catherine. All right. We've Happy been... Aloha Friday. Happy Aloha Friday. We've been talking with HPR's Noe Tanigawa. Uh, we should add that, uh, you know, Hawaii Public Radio is among the hundreds of clients of ProService. Uh, ProService is also an HPR underwriter.
Honolulu Civil Beat brings us our reality check today. Chad Blair here to tell us about the latest with Hawaii's biggest and most expensive municipal project ever, our favorite subject, rail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked a whole lot about uh, Good morning, Catherine, <laughs> good first morning. of all. But uh, haven't talked a whole lot about rail with, with COVID-19 uh, the last month or so. But, in fact, this uh, story from Marcel Honore is related to COVID-19 because it, it has slowed down uh, construction and uh, scheduling woes, uh, pushing things back further. So at a heart board meeting yesterday, they came up with an idea. The, the contractor, FTG, that's currently building the segment that goes from about the airport, Honolulu International Airport, Daniel Kanoi, uh to Middle Street. It's not done yet, but why not let them build a few blocks further, About a, actually about a third of a mile this is into Dillingham by now. This would take it to um, uh, Pu'uhale Road in Kalihi. That's just right past OCCC. And the idea behind this is, well, you know, they're already working on the project. They could keep construction going. It might, in fact, in the long run, uh, turn out uh, to be a better use of money. And, of course, as we all know, this project keeps going up. The current figure is $9 billion. Right, and I know... You know, they want to get ahead, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. but they've got to make sure that we're doing this all uh, legally, right? That it's not going right. to run afoul by of no, procurement. <laughs> yeah, by no means a, a done deal. In fact, procurement was brought up by uh, board members yesterday. Do you, do you violate the state procurement laws? you got to be careful about that. Remember, the federal government is still investigating rail. We haven't heard much about that lately, but we do know the investigation continues you got to make sure the fta is okay with this too remember they're the ones with that that um big matching fund that is critical to completing the project in terms of finances but there seemed to be some indication that trade groups unions generally supportive you know maybe not a bad idea to stick with the contractor that's already on board right rather than bring somebody in new this however does not change at least uh from what i can tell from ourselves reporting that last segment, remember, that's the one that's been delayed, the one that will take us from Middle Street, or now maybe it's Pu'uhale Street, um, to uh, Alamoana Center. And that's the one where Hart has been trying to find a PPP, right, a public-private partnership to uh, take care of that last segment of the rail line. Right, not to be confused, uh, confused with PPE, which we've been hearing <laughs> about with COVID. <laughs> that's uh, funny. That's a good one, and that's a, a good thing. to Yeah, pro, a public-private partnership. Uh, that award uh, has been delayed at least until August. Uh, uh, we're told that there are at least two finalists vying for that contract. Um, and, but, you know, right now there has been talk about delaying. If I heard last I heard correctly, remember, this was going to open uh, at least for limited run. The, the first uh, segment of the rail line from East Kapolei to wherever it's completed, the goal was to get that maybe up by October or November. I'm not sure if that's still exactly on target because of the delays due to COVID. But uh, that is the hope. The full rail line, not until, gosh, I think it's 2025. Yeah, I think when we talked with Andy Robbins, he was saying that he thinks the October thing would slip by three weeks. But okay. uh, uh, yeah, it, it, a lot, I think, depends on what the FTA says, right? And they're hoping for some flexibility. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, there's also other uh, concerns that remain as well, along with, um, remember, this is going into Dillingham. This is a very congested area. You're going to have to deal with utility cost, bearing those uh, electricity lines and, and so forth. Uh, and then there's also a, a big risk still awaiting heart, and this is condemning or at least taking over, paying for the properties that they're going to need in order to build the elevated rail. Howard Hughes Corporation, which is very active in Kakaka, owns a lot of those. Uh, some disagreement on how much those lands are worth may have to be settled in court. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting uh, part of the story. I, I didn't realize there were so many parcels that they were going to... Right, and, and uh, not really having to worry about it until now that it is, <laughs> in fact, nearing Dillingham. Right. Uh, the, uh, one other thing that I thought was really intriguing out of that story was uh, uh, just the technology, right? Um, <laughs> we have all these Zoom yeah. meetings and, and everything else, and, and there was a hiccup. Yeah, the, the board did not vote on the matter, uh, but what Marcel was telling me, what's in the story is they had problems with that software that they were using uh, to meet. I don't know whether it was Zoom or, or whatever the case is, but it essentially collapsed. Screens go dark. This has been a challenge for 
you know, the Senate and House committees, for the, the mayor's office, for the the state government when he has his press conferences with the, the governor. Uh, but, you know, you can't meet in person, right, because of social distancing. Right, right. So, oh, well. All right, we'll, we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. Thanks, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. That was Honolulu Civil Beach Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Marcel Henri's story about the rail project, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from Sacred Hearts Academy, whose students contribute 60,000 hours of community service annually. Learn more at sacredhearts.org. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. On the next Fresh Air, we're Everybody dipping into our archive for interviews that are good to hear during these difficult days. We'll feature our interview and performance with singer Iris DeMint. Her music is deeply influenced by the Delta and the Pentecostal Church. Her song, Let the Mystery Be, was the theme song for the HBO series, The Leftovers. Join us. Some say this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Rice Partnership and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Here in Hawaii and indeed across the globe, our kupuna are some of the most vulnerable groups facing the COVID-19 health crisis. When the simple act of going out to buy groceries means exponentially increasing the risk for infection, how do vulnerable populations continue the small but essential services that they need? Well, Kurt Osaki is one of the founders of Kapuna Care, a grassroots volunteer organization dedicated to helping our state's elderly through this crisis. He spoke to the Conversations Harrison Patino about how small acts of kindness can mean so much during this time. For Kapuna, of course, all of us, we don't know enough about COVID-19. And I think a lot of people through the current data have concerns because the more elderly you are and if you have pre-existing type of health issues, you're more vulnerable to uh, catching um, coronavirus. And um, so we're very concerned about that. You know, there's a lot of challenges ahead of us, but for all of us, every single one of us. And, you know, for us, we, we want to reach out and hopefully help those people in need. And we feel that it is our duty and obligation to help elderly citizens and also disabled citizens. So just because there's been so much focus on how our elderly and people with pre-existing conditions are a lot more susceptible to this, I got to imagine that's giving uh, Kapuna a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I can just imagine. And, you know, I use my parents, for example. They're very carefree. They want to get out on their own, so it's very difficult for them. You know, the fact that they have to be concerned and worried about their health and they can't go out and do their normal day-to-day errands and um, things that they do on a normal basis. You know, I've seen it. You know, I have to go shopping a few times and I see it on the faces of a lot of elderly people. And, you know, this is the reason why I think we want to reach out and do a small part from our side to help get our community through this. So not just from a health standpoint, but from a perspective of daily convenience, a lot of things become harder for the elderly during a time like this that many of us might take for granted. Everything. I mean, everything they do. I mean, especially the ones that are very independent. It is the day-to-day, anything, you getting out, you get out of the house, it's that fear of, you know, contracting something. If you could give just an overview of the kinds of services and resources that Kapuna Care looks to provide. Kapuna Care is um, built from a grassroots of volunteers, basically, all across the state. So we got representatives of each island. Each island, we have a point of contact where volunteers and actually Kapuna can call into for assistance. What these contact people will do will be to join the volunteer and the Kapuna together, and they would be communicating directly with one another in terms of needs, in terms of delivery times, in terms of what they can do for each one. So basically, they're going to build a relationship. What we are providing is non-emergency services. We're hoping that part of our effort is trying to keep people off the streets as much as possible, to try and keep out of the 
supermarkets as much as possible. So hopefully we can combine these efforts in terms of doing these errands for the Kapuna the same time we're doing errands for ourselves or other people in the community. The services that we're going to provide are very simple. There's simple errands, grocery shopping. There are certain pharmacies out there that allow you now to pick up for other people based on that. And also, we really want to connect the business community, meaning the takeout food deliveries. We're hoping that we can educate our volunteers to all these great specials, deals that's going on out there in the community, then um, offer it to the Kapuna. So they basically can get meals brought to them by each volunteer. It seems like a big focus of your efforts is ensuring a good quality of life. For me, I feel like it's a responsibility, personal responsibility to take care of our elderly. You know, for me, I'm hoping that I can care for the elderly the same way I would care for my own parents, to maintain sort of this natural, hopefully um, consistent lifestyle you know, through this crisis that we're going through right now and to provide them with the care and I I think the reassurance that someone's there to help. Now, it's a tough time for everyone, but it's also a really tough time for nonprofits and grassroots organizations. Have there been any challenges with Kapuna Care for providing these services during this time? Yeah, you know, again, safety is number one for us, for our volunteers, for Kapuna. That's number one. So we do have a packet in terms of safety procedures and protocols that we go through. So we want to make sure that everyone's going through the proper process as we go through these deliveries and the care that we give. You know, getting out the word is great, you know, and trying to get it, but we need to get out the word more even. You know, curfews like on Kauai and, you know, all these shelter-in-place rules, we need to abide. I think it's for the best of us, but it does create a little bit of an obstacles, and we're trying to work through that and around that. And also, there's a lot of messages, and there's a lot of great organization and people out there that are trying to help the same as we are trying to help. And I say that's great. I mean, there are other people that are doing similar care for the Kupuna, and I encourage that. In fact, we're going to try and promote that through our means, too. Because we can't do it alone. You know, it's going to be need of everyone, I think, in the community that's going to help out and make this through this as best as possible. Now, across the country, we've seen things like Kapuna shopping hours or special time of days where yep. supermarkets and stores have reserved hours for people with a lot higher needs. What are some of the uh, these other special considerations that can be made for our state's elderly and for people across the country like this? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important that organizations, and especially for the elderly, you know, if they can collaborate, I think, more. You know, if they can collaborate and share resources, because not one organization is going to be able to provide that assistance. So I'm hoping that we can. You know, shopping hours, I think, is great. But again, that's risking, I think, or um, a kapuna to, you know, contracting the virus by going out as much as possible. So that's why we're there. We're hoping that we can provide that assistance to provide the service to the kapuna. I, I just feel like it's should be a very natural grassroots type of organic movement from everyone's effort in providing that it doesn't need to even be organized. It could be just your neighbors, I think, helping one another, you know, friends, family, everyone. And I think this is going to make us get through this as best as possible. I think that people are handling this really well, you know, in terms of us getting out the word. I think um, it's going to hurt for a lot of businesses out there for a little while, but obviously it's going to hurt for everyone. I encourage everyone to still, you know, not only help and assist our Kapuna, but also reach out to the businesses as much as you can and the possible because they are the lifeblood of our community, and these are the people that's going to really get us back on our feet again. Kurt, I think it's a great place to leave it there, and that's great information, so thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate your time. You know, I appreciate it very much, and I uh, hope everyone takes care and be well. Thank you. That was Kurt Osaki, one of the founders of Kapuna Care. He was talking to The Conversation's Harrison Patino about the organization's grassroots efforts to help offer support to our seniors during these very challenging times.
support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programs. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Christine Page, author of The Healing Power of the Sacred Woman. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about illness as a message of the soul. Sunday at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. This year marks 50 years since the American with Disabilities Act was first passed, so maybe it's fitting that more than ever we're seeing more American Sign Language interpreters with state and county daily briefings televised just about every day. Across the continent, more people are becoming familiar with ASL. In fact, in Canada, one interpreter has developed quite a following. Nigel Howard even has a Facebook fan page. Jan Fried is an ASL professor at Kapilani Community College. She talked with us last week about interpreting for the deaf community, and she says it's no surprise to her that Nigel Howard is gaining worldwide attention. He is a delight. He's so sharp, and he is one of the most amazing interpreters I've ever seen and worked with. Well, it's no wonder after seeing him online and seeing why he's got a fan base. Yes. He's handsome. He's handsome. He is smart. He's funny. He's sweet. He's approachable, and he's just damn good. So I, do you know how deaf interpreters work? They work with a hearing interpreter who is basically giving them the information from English or the source, the source spoken language to the sign language that they're using. Like in Canada, they use American Sign Language. So he's working with a de- with a hearing interpreter who's sitting in the who's sitting in front of him and giving him the information. And in, and then he takes it and makes it be this beautifully interpreted and then accessible version of the information that's coming from a deaf person and, 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 and someone who's a native user of, of sign language. What I love about American Sign Language is that, you know, it can be so expressive. Yes, super expressive, but it's, it's as expressive as the speaker, and that's one of the main challenges that we often face when we are being televised. <laughs> and, you know, the basic TV-going audience is looking, and they're going, oh, my God, they're so expressive. Or it's like, oh, my God, what are they doing? It's like they're not, you know, it's what Whatever we're doing is mirroring the intention of the speaker. So if the speaker is talking about this massive spread of the COVID virus, the facial grammar is going to be intense. It's going to, eyes will widen, eyebrows will go up, the body's much more intense because it's expressing the intensity of that message and the fact that it's widespread. There's a tongue wag that happens um, sometimes if you're showing something being widespread and it looks hilarious but it's not hilarious. It's grammar. For folks who aren't familiar with American With people who aren't familiar with the language, they don't know that that's grammar. And, and, you know, I've I've gotten messages, what is that tongue waggle about? Oh, that's so funny. It's like, it's not funny. It's grammar. Well, now, I've been watching these news conferences, Mm -hmm. uh, and it is an amazing opportunity to get our interpreters in action. It's been extraordinary. I have to give lots of credit to both the city and county and state governments for being very very proactive through, I mean, really throughout the state, every county is doing a terrific job of making sure that the information during news conferences is accessible to the deaf community. And the fact that it's an extra benefit because interpreters are considered to be independent contractors. Although we are referred by agencies, we are independent contractors. And so the fact that a lot of work has gone by the wayside during the physical distancing that's going on, there's not a lot of work out there. So that's providing a tremendous opportunity for a variety of interpreters to have a chance to be interpreting the press conferences. I know that states across the country are using uh, sign language interpreters. I actually was looking at a press conference that the governor of Guam gave, and she had an interpreter, and she was really good. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We've got a couple. Some, we've got some good interpreters in Guam, and they've been worked very, very hard to take professional development opportunities and to develop their competency as in, as interpreters. Yes, yeah, so it's great. There's a, there's definitely a couple there. We have a nice link with the interpreters in Guam. Yes, yeah, so you've gone out there and actually trained them. I have. I have, and so a couple of my colleagues, yes. So it's been really swell. As I said, we have a, a lovely relationship with interpreters on Guam, and then also a colleague of mine was doing some online work with them, too, for professional development, and she's in, she's in Oregon. So yes, yes. We actually, this, it's a very collegial group across the country and in Canada because we all share the same sign language, Canada, the United States, most of Micronesia, and American Samoa. But tell us about the efforts that are being made to reach out to the deaf community about this health crisis and what they need to know. So aside from, as you mentioned, the fact that news conferences are being interpreted into American Sign Language throughout the country um, using both hearing interpreters and deaf interpreters. And those are those truly are interpreters who are deaf and working with a hearing teammate. And then you've got hearing interpreters working as teams. So we're all working collegially. Aside from that, there has been a tremendous effort in various states and various organizations that work with the deaf community to make sure that there's a raft of informational videos made about the COVID crisis, about things that you can do to flatten the curve, to stay safe, about benefits, about the supposed check that's going to be coming in the mail from the federal government, all sorts of things, you know, different relief efforts. And it's coming out daily, these videos that are done in American Sign Language that are usually have deaf people doing the information. They're, they're the ones who are signing the information so that it's very accessible it's from deaf to deaf. And the fact that, as I said, it's coming out daily, there's a there's a, a really great video called The Daily Moth that's a, usually a, it's a, just a, a news and information vlog, video log that's, that's done daily. And um, they've really done a great update every day. And then there's other sites that are also being very committed to doing regular updates. And in fact, Google has put out these videos that are being made by different organizations and that are also accessible targeting seniors, targeting kids, targeting families. So it really is across the board. Well, you know, I've taken some sign language classes. So for me, yeah. when I watch these news conferences, it's a nice refresher. You know, that's probably the biggest benefit that everyone's going to have now from the COVID crisis. They're going to, they are going to know how to sign COVID and they may get that refresher course like you. Well, now share with our <laughs> listeners who may not know much about sign language interpreting because it's pretty intense, you know, so Extremely you can't intense. really do like two hours straight. Why the viewing public is seeing two interpreters is because when you're interpreting, you have to pay attention 100% of the time. So we are processing the information. We're going from truly one language to another. So we have to make sure that the meaning is correct from one language to another, you know, the intentionality. We have to understand what the the goal is of this interaction. That That is the thread that holds the whole message together. We're predicting what's going to be happening next because we're doing this simultaneously. We are not generally getting any preparation. Any interpreter worth his or her salt is going to definitely be looking at some of those press conferences on a regular basis and staying up with the news so that we're as prepared as possible. But we're not seeing generally any script. We have to really jump in cold. So we have to really be using our absolute attention and our knowledge about the content, our proficiency in both languages, understanding both cultures. How do you make those adaptations from one language and one culture to another and make sure that the message stays true and that we are getting the the speaker's intention accurately conveyed? Right, because if you've got a serious message, you want to make sure that you get it right. Absolutely. There's a lot writing on this. This is public information. This is, you know, making sure... we're all in this to flatten the curve. We have to all make sure we are getting the same information and with the same gravity as well. That's why, you know, research has shown that interpreters, the interpreter message stays most accurate at 20 to 30 minutes. And then, you know, the message might start to, uh, the concentration starts becoming a little bit more difficult. So that's why you see the interpreters switch. And so you've been able then to uh, tap interpreters 
kind of across the state, haven't you? Well, it's not me. I'm one of the interpreters who has, who has actually had the opportunity to be part of some of the press conferences. The agencies, we have we have two interpreting agencies in the state, and both of them are, are providing interpreters for various press conferences and information sessions and um, have done a really lovely job, again, because the interpreters are independent contractors. So many don't have work. I actually have a full-time job here, here at the college, but several interpreters do not. And so the opportunity to be able to have extra work is really, really important. And spreading the wealth, because it's, it's a definitely a different kind of venue. Um, some interpreters like being in f- or don't mind being in front of the camera. There's other interpreters, that's just not their preference at all. There may there be other areas that they prefer. So, yeah, it has been a great opportunity for many interpreters. And it's, and it's lovely to see the different kinds of styles that everyone has, but everyone is doing a spectacular job. Is it your hope that maybe folks who don't know enough about sign language and maybe want to learn that this will spur them to to take classes and understand our deaf community a little bit better? Or, you know, maybe there's a, a family member who, you know, has not chosen to learn sign language, but maybe will. I don't know. Yes. You know, that's that's an extra added benefit because really 90% of deaf people come from families who are not deaf. So 90% have parents who can hear. They don't share the same language and culture. They may not be getting, they may not be able to have these conversations at the dinner table about what's happening. So this may encourage family members as they start seeing how accessible American Sign Language is to start taking ASL classes. And we certainly have them readily available year-round at Capilani Community College. And also UH Manoa has ASL classes regularly. So there's definitely opportunities for people to learn American Sign Language. Kudos, kudos to my colleagues. Mm-hmm. We've got, we are really fortunate to have a wonderful cadre of excellent interpreters in the state. Not enough. Um, we're trying to make more, certainly. That's our mission here at KCC. But um, we, yeah, we don't have enough interpreters, but the ones we have are really, really good. That was Jan Freed, ASL professor at Kapiolani Community College, talking about how the COVID daily news conferences are putting ASL interpreters in the limelight. Here in the islands, there are two groups who offer those services, Isle Interprets and Interpreting Services. And that is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, notes from the field in our wildlife. What's happening as humans pull back from the landscape? What are you seeing? Hungry birds and mongoose wandering, hey, where are those handouts? Where they disappeared to? Share your observations. We would love to hear those stories. Our program produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Russell Subiono. Backyard theme, thanks to John DeMello. Our theme music, Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a good weekend, everybody.